Welcome to This Academic Life, Episode 8. Hi, I'm Kim Michelle Lewis, Associate Dean of Research and Professor of Physics. Hi, I'm Lucy Zhang. I'm a professor in mechanical engineering. Hi, I'm Pani Anuel. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering. Choosing to pursue a degree in the U.S. or in Europe can be a tough decision, but understanding key differences can help. In this episode, we'll try to discuss some aspects of higher education in the U.S. and Europe and how they differ. The number of international students in the United States set an all-time high in the 2018-2019 academic year, the fourth consecutive year with more than 1 million international students with 51.6% pursuing STEM fields. In 2018, there were more than 340,000 U.S. students studying abroad for academic credit and more than 38,000 students overseas for non-credit internship, volunteering, research, and other work. Data also shows that about 10% of U.S. undergraduate students studying abroad before graduating. European countries remain the most popular destinations for U.S. students with 55% going to Europe. Today, we have a special guest with us, Dr. Christos Atenisio, who can provide some insight into this matter. Welcome, Christos. Can you please briefly introduce yourself to our audiences? Hi. My name is Christos Athanasiu, and as you may guess from my first name or my last name or my accent, I'm of Greek origin, so I was born and raised in Athens. I spent a big part of my life there, so I did my high school and undergrad education, and then I decided to study abroad, and after a short stop in the Netherlands, I landed in Switzerland, where I did my PhD at a school called Federal Polytechnic de Lausanne. It stands for EPFL. And after I graduated from EPFL, I decided that I wanted to move to the US. So I crossed the pond and I landed in Brown University, where I'm a postdoc as of 2018. Before we start, can you tell us a little bit about your personal path in academia and why you chose the STEM field? For me, it came naturally. So since I was very young, I was always very interested in how things worked. For example, how airplanes, like how they fly, what are the underlying like physical principles that make an airplane fly? And can we find this in other things in nature, for example, how insects fly and things like that. So I was always very curious about nature and about how things work. So it was very natural that I studied applied mathematics and physics for my undergrad. So after obtaining my undergrad, I somehow wanted to do something more applied than just solving differential equations. So I decided to pursue a PhD in engineering and something that was at the interface of physics with engineering, so I did photonics. After that, I decided that I enjoyed more the materials part than the optics part. So for my postdoc, I decided to do work in mechanics and materials. 
So it seems that you've been familiar with multiple countries' educational system from undergraduate to graduate and then now being a postdoc here in United States. So can you tell us a little bit about major differences that you see between these two different systems? I'll do my best to provide the big picture, although it is very difficult. I've always been in research-oriented universities, so I'll mostly focus on such universities. This is very different from teaching-oriented universities, from like smaller academic colleges. In Europe, there is no unified educational system. So each country has its own sets of rules, entrance exams, qualification exams, and they are very different. So, for example, in, in Greece or in France, the university entrance exams are very challenging and normally takes years of preparation for the students in order to enter a university. This is not the same, for example, in Switzerland, where Swiss citizens can really simply enroll in EPFL or ETH, which are the biggest STEM-oriented technical universities. So, in the, in the US, the educational system is rather difficult. Students need to sit for entrance exams, yet these exams are quite easier than the ones compared with the European countries. However, in the US, the economic mobility is certainly a top factor for deciding to attend college. As compared to the EU, where universities are free. Because education is great and there's almost no tuition, I bet there will be a lot of number of applications. What is the typical criteria that are used? Is it based on the GPA or is it based on the entrance exam only or a whole lot of other things? So for Europeans, European citizens, the fact that the universities are free is taken for granted. So wherever you go in Europe, you do not really take into account that you need to pay tuition or any other kind of fees in the university. So in order to choose a school, normally this is done based on your GPA and the location of the school. So of course, like going to study certain countries might be more costly because of the life costs rather than the tuition. This is the main driving force for choosing a school. The main difference with the U.S. schools is that there is no GRE required typically for STEM fields and sometimes not even an English exam, something like TOEFL. So is that true even for universities that they are English based? For the master programs, universities do require TOEFL or the equivalent, but for PhD programs, most of the schools do not require basically anything. So one would just contact the professor or reply to the ad that is typically online. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are no formal documents rather than the GPA or cover letter and the statement of interest. My question is, at least in, in the States, uh, for graduate school, for most people who pursue PhD, and typically the courses are a minimum like requirement to obtain a PhD. So is there such a thing in terms of course requirement for PhD studies? So for PhD studies in general, in Europe, there are no course requirements, so you do not need to do any credit. For EPFL specifically, they are trying to adopt an American system where they do have doctoral schools and you need to complete some credits. 
yet those credits are not equivalent to what a student here would do. So, for example, I was in the photonics doctoral program and I had to do, I think, 12 or 15 credits, which can be done within like three months. Are you talking about a straight from undergraduate to PhD program or this is after master's degree? Oh, yeah. So one other difference is that in Europe, you cannot really apply for a PhD degree without having a master's degree. So once you complete your master's degree, you can apply for the doctoral program. Typically, the master's degree lasts for two years and the PhD degree lasts for four years, four to five years in Switzerland and in the Netherlands or three years in France. So what about sponsorship, like stipend? So because here, a PhD student usually is sponsored by, you know, where they would work as a research assistant, which is sponsored by a project, or as a teaching assistant, so they will be working as a TA for a particular class, for example. So that's how they get their stipend here. So how does that work in Europe? It is way different. Uh, I'll talk specifically for Switzerland and the Netherlands, where PhD students are considered as university employees and uh, have all the benefits of a university employee, including pension plan and uh, things like that. <laughs> um, There's still pension over there. <laughs> oh, so maybe we should, we should find a PhD position in Europe. It's, <laughs> there is no pension here in US. <laughs> Normally, when a PhD position is open, the professor, the PI, has already found the required funding to fund the grad student for all the, the, the whole study. From the student perspective, you do not need to worry about this. As a faculty member, so there are different ways of obtaining funding, either through European or national grants or through the industry. Well, that's nice. <laughs> so <laughs> over here, right, supporting a student, a PhD student is very costly, right? So a, a PI would need to cover the student's tuition uh, in private school. That's very high. And we also need to cover their stipend. On top of that, there's also, uh, I think there's some, yeah, some overhead that we need to cover. So um, I know that, you, and, and that's always increasing over time as well, right? So regardless, the funding size, the tuition and stipend is always going up. So that's a huge responsibility, obviously, on all the faculty's shoulders, because it's, it's, a, it's a responsibility to the students who are in that PI's lab because you constantly, you know, because you don't know when the funding's coming in, how long it is, you can't really control it, right? So if we got a three-year grant, we may cover three out of the five years that the student's here. And then in the meantime, you keep on writing proposals, trying to get more money, but that's not guaranteed. So that's why the TA 
oftentimes balance that out because the university would pay the tuition and the stipend for them to be the TA. So I think that the, in the, the way the money works uh, over here is very different. I guess one question that I'm, I would be interested in is the stress. <laughs> we know that in the U.S., uh, as a PhD student, or anybody who's in this sort of higher, you know, educational system, the stress is high all the time. We're constantly on the go. We have to keep on producing. Same for faculty and same for students. What is it like studying in Europe? Yeah, so that's quite different. So in terms of faculty, I think at schools like EPFL, uh, in terms of faculty, there is a lot of stress as well. But like from the perspective of a student, work-life balance in Europe is way better than it is here. So as I mentioned, students are, PhD students are considered as employees. So typically they can do a, a nine to six job. I know this is quite different from what happens here. Yeah, the faculty level is different though, because acquiring funding is never easy. What is the main reason that European, they decide to come to U.S.? The way that you are describing the work-life balance over there is much better. So what's the main motivation for European to pursue higher education at the Ph.D. level or postdoc in United States? Mm -hmm. So there are, I think, two main reasons. The first reason would be, for example, in Europe, you need to do a bachelor's and a master's degree before you apply for a PhD program. And most of the students do that, and then they decide they want to do a PhD. But it's too late to apply for the US schools because they already have a master and they would need to repeat all the master requirements uh, in the US. If they apply to a European school, they can get admitted without doing any extra credits or anything like this. So this is the reason that many students, including myself, stayed for a PhD in Europe. Many students decided to move in the US because it has to offer way more opportunities in terms of an academic, uh, in terms of academic development, meaning that in prestigious Euro European Euro universities, if you really want to follow the faculty, the academic track, you need to have spent time in the in the US. So they, re, they really value this because everybody knows how harder it is for students and faculty members here. So once you have done this, so it's kind of a step you need to pass in order to become a faculty member in a European university afterwards. So people who do want to, do, to follow an academic career, I think the U.S. academia is offering a better landscape in terms of opportunities and in terms of growth. So does that mean like the training is more rigorous in the U.S.? Is that true? So uh, it means that sometimes, for example, graduate students are required to participate in funding proposals. They need to talk with the company that sponsors them. They need to sometimes find their own funding. So all these things, although they're very difficult, they do uh, grow the student. Whereas in Europe, normally when you get admitted in the PhD program, 
then you're all set and yeah if you do fine research-wise you will graduate yet the the overall growth as a professional is not that much i think here in us they really encourage students especially phd students to present at conferences and also apply for fellowships if they are qualified how about in europe for conferences yeah i think normally all the phd students would go in a few conferences during their studies for fellowships there i do not think there are many fellowships that uh, graduate graduate students could apply for so here in in the US it's very common for for students to apply for a fellowship at the at their own institution at their own university or for an NSF fellowship and things like this there is no such there is no such a thing in Europe so there are no fellowships basically and if there if there are any there are very 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 few and limited so this is not something common you you were very confident in saying in this country it's about 3 years to finish your phd and this country is about 4 years and for me i'm like well if you go to this school it might take 5 years <laughs> and if you go to this school in the us it might take 7 years for me i i don't feel so confident to say Yes, in the US, it's going to take you about four to four and a half years to <laughs> complete your PhD. So I'm wondering, is it really true that three years, four years, you know, or is it just loosely three years, four years? Um, because I know sometimes in the US, there was a big effort to not keep students in school beyond a certain number of years if they're trying to pursue their their PhD. And so I guess I'm asking the question to find out if there is a similar problem in in the EU in terms of students just gone beyond the four or three years that are that's set. The PhD program, the time of the PhD program is, as I mentioned, it, it is fixed. And uh, normally, even if the PI would require the student to stay longer. Uh, normally, it is not the case. Of course, there are, there are outliers, cases where both the PI and the student want to stay longer, <laughs> or there are cases where both the PI and the student want to like end the program as soon as possible. But roughly, in Switzerland, I did not see anyone, at least in the, in, in the PhD program that I was enrolled, that would stay more than five years in, their, in the grad school. And this is sort of also regulated by the university administration. So what will happens if a student is not performing in terms of research? Yeah, this really depends on the on the school, on the on the PI. Every country has different rules for the university and the PhD program. So in Switzerland, I think that any student as an employee can be fired with three months notice, I think. So maybe to follow up on that, here in the US, the programs uh, that I'm familiar with have this PhD qualifying exam, and you have to pass that qualifying exam to continue the PhD program. Do European schools that you are familiar with have a PhD qualifying exam or any similar requirements? 
it is not as formal as here in the US. In EPFL, as I mentioned, they're trying to follow an, uh, an American system. So they do have like sort of a prelim, which is equivalent to what you have here in the US. Some schools in the US have two exams, I think one for courses and one for research. In EPFL, it was only for research. Normally, in other countries, the first year the supervisor decides if the student is going to continue the first year of the of the of the PhD program. As I mentioned, the PhD program itself is three to four years. So the first year, at the end of the first year, there is a yes or no decision normally in most colleges. Okay, so it's kind of similar to here, but in I guess slightly different fashion. In a, in a more relaxed manner. Maybe it's yes. more like candidacy, right? By the time you actually do your candidacy, you know, you kind of, you know, like not many people actually fail that because yes. by the time you get there, that means your advisor, the PI, had already said okay or something like yeah. that. That's, yeah. that's true, yeah. So I wanted to ask about uh, funding opportunities. If you compare the funding opportunities in the EU compared to the U.S., whether it's for the graduate students or for the faculty, is it more or less or is it the same or, you know, it's two different systems so you can't really judge? So in Switzerland, there is definitely a large pool of national funding. Faculty members can also apply for European funding. So this happens I think in most of the European countries, so there is national and international funding. For example, there are Marie Curie programs, which can also be the case for an individual fellowship. So one may find Marie Curie postdoctoral fellowship, but uh, it's not really, I think, comparable because the two educational systems are way different. I, I've seen many labs here working with a lot of industrial funding, especially in, uh, in engineering. In some labs in Europe, it is also the case, but other universities are completely detached from the industry. So you mentioned some of these fellowships for postdocs. How the selection process works and how important diversity is in promoting women and minorities and encouraging them to get to them careers? I have never applied myself for a, for a fellowship like this. I think they are also taking into, uh, into account diversity and inclusion, but I don't know if the rate is the same as it would be for U.S. fellowship. Inclusion, do you specifically mean like in inclusion of uh, minorities or women or both? It is both women and minorities. We were talking about diversity. I, that's a good way to transition to M&M initiative. So can you talk a little bit about your M&M initiative and the purpose of that? Yeah, thank you for bringing this up. So during COVID, and as I'm experimentalist, I had to stay home and I had to reflect on many things, <laughs> including how we as scientists contribute to society. I think there are racial and ethnic disparities that need to be addressed, and it needs to be basically scientists, so it needs to be us that educate the next generations in a more proper way. So we need to have gender-neutral academic communities in order to achieve that. And, of course, 
everybody can do a very small thing. What I can do is to uh, offer a mentorship program, a three-year mentorship program for high school students and undergrads who want to pursue a STEM degree. Uh, so all the high school students or undergrads from underrepresented co communities can just reach me out. And what I can offer is essentially to build confidence in the mentee, learn how to uh, teach how to define clear goals, how to craft applications, how to craft a CV that would fly, for example, for a graduate program or for an industrial job that would require engineering background. If anyone's interested, I don't know if it's open to the general public, this program. So we can put the link in our show notes so we can get this word out and, and have a better or broader outreach. Thank you very much. So I, I'm really happy to know that, you know, you started this mentoring program because this is one of the things that's very near and dear to my heart. And, and Lucy and Panya know that I'm always doing this very informal mentoring. And it's one of the, I would say the, the biggest gratifications that I have as a scientist, as a black female physicist. So I love that you're doing that. So my question is, do you have students that you're currently mentoring? Can you tell us where you are in the, the process? Yeah, so basically this is an initiative that I just started. So I do not have any students yet. I have found big difficulty in uh, accessing the proper communities uh, that would be interested in attending this mentorship program. My plan is to have two mentees, I think, for the next three years. And uh, I've put a deadline May 31st, that is my birthday. So that, uh, <laughs> yeah, so for people to apply. So everyone is very welcome to apply and I'll be happy to talk to as many students as I can. And I really think it's a wonderful idea. And I, I mean, obviously COVID had us all thinking deeply on many different things. And that's how we got the podcast started. and. This is really for the greater community and and I hope and I wish that many of us can do very similar deeds. Um, this is really one great way to uh, to contribute. And if all of us do a little bit uh, each part, we can we can make a huge difference. And I 100% agree with Lucy. If each one of us in this academic life become a role model and mentor and hold somebody's hand and guide them, not forcing them to follow our path, but guiding them to find their passion, I think that the world would be a much better world. I agree. And I just want to add that I had mentors myself before I applied for my undergrad education, before applying for grad school. and before applying for a postdoc position. So I think it's really important for young people to reach out. And it's really important for people from underrepresented communities to have somebody to talk to yes. and uh, get some help and confidence. Yeah. Thank you so much, Christos. That's, that's wonderful. To those who are thinking about studying in the US or Europe, Give yourself time and reflect on what you really want to gain from your college experience. Studying abroad can be a life-changing experience, but whether you choose to study in the US or Europe, make sure you do what makes you happy.
and enjoy your experience to the fullest because at the end of the day, your happiness should matter the most. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Find us at thisacademiclife.org or follow us on Facebook. You can listen to our latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. Please rate us. We welcome any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. Join us next time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this academic life.